Adobe, really excited to launch the Key in the Kite podcast with a conversation with Crystal Echohawk of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. Tata, I'm so excited. It's also a first for me. In all my years in the U.S. and all my travels, I don't think I've ever actually interacted with a Native American. And I certainly, there's a lot of education that, I, that I'm missing. So I'm looking forward to learning um, a lot on this one. Here, Crystal mentioned Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, the first Native American to be a member of the president's cabinet in the United States, mm. the first Native American to be the Interior Secretary. You'll hear Crystal talk a little bit about Deb. I wanted to make sure that you knew who she was before we dove into this episode. The other thing that you'll hear her mention is the Washington NFL team. There's been an effort for years to get the Washington NFL team to change their name, and she'll talk a little bit about that as well. Welcome to the Key and Kite podcast. I'm joining you from Lagos, Nigeria, while Carter is in Denver, Colorado. And today we're having a conversation from yet another fascinating part of the world. Our conversation is with Crystal Echo Hawk, a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma and the CEO of Illuminative. Illuminative was founded to capitalize on the findings of Reclaiming Native Truth, the largest public opinion research and strategy setting initiative ever conducted for and about Native Americans. It's a fascinating body of work. You can learn more about the work of Illuminative at illuminatives.org. Prior to forming Illuminative, Echo Hawk served as president of Echo Hawk Consulting and as the executive director of the Nota Begay III Foundation. First of all, thank you. The work that you and I have done together, I count as some of the most meaningful work of my career. Before we begin and get into that, I want to take a step back and talk about language. I had a, a person who worked for me years ago who said, I just want to know what language to use because I don't want to offend anybody. And as you and I started talking and started working together, you gave me a gift. You said to me, I know that you are well-meaning and well-intentioned. So if you say something that I find offensive or, or something that, that comes off the wrong way, I'm going to let you know. And I'm going to tell you what it is in the moment so that we can just have that moment of learning and get past it. So language can be tricky. I want to ask about language related to Native Americans. Native Americans, Indian, indigenous, are there preferred words? Are there not preferred words? What what words should people use? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's so funny because it's the age-old question. It's one of it's actually the like top, one of the top questions anybody ever asked. Like, I don't know what to call y'all. <laughs> and we actually last year did the largest survey of native peoples ever done. We surveyed over 6,400 native peoples from all 50 states, representing 401 tribes. And we asked this question. And how do you want to be referred to? And the number one answer was, I want somebody to recognize me for my tribe, right? So if you meet a Native person, you should ask them, oh, what tribe are you from, right? For someone, so I'm Pawnee. I'm from the Pawnee Nation here in Oklahoma. And so I'm Pawnee. Um, so that's the number one way. And then I think if you're talking more broadly about Native peoples, it's, it's really close. I think most people prefer Native peoples or Native Americans, or Indigenous peoples. But 
saying Indian is not really acceptable for non-Native peoples. Now you'll hear it like very like casually, colloquially used amongst Native people themselves, right? And it's very generational and it's sometimes it's just like a shorthand of how we talk to one another, but it's really not appropriate for, for non-Natives to, to say Indian. Um, we're trying to get people out of that. Um, American Indian is really something that the federal government still uses. And, you know, so it's fine. But I mean, I think in terms of preference, order preferences, specific tribe, and then either Native peoples, Native Americans or Indigenous peoples works too. That's really helpful. Thank you. I think um, I think that's literally one of the first hurdles that I hear people talking about. And I, and I remember when we were using, when we were working together and I was talking about some of the work we were doing in my job at the American Heart Association. And I used the phrase Indian country, which I had heard, right? Used. And someone said, oh my God, can you say that? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I remember that. <laughs> let's, let's ask about it. Right. Well, and it's actually a legal definition. I mean, it, it serves as it's a legal and political definition of the land base that is still held in trust by by tribes. Um, so it's actually like a like a federal legal term. And so it's okay to say, and when we talk a lot about Indian country, you know, that's that's fine. But I think the biggest thing is for people is it's always about relationship building because native peoples are not a monolith as is any population. Not all white people are the same. Not all black people are the same down the line. Same thing with native people. So I think oftentimes if you meet a native person, it's just about asking like, what's your preference? Yeah. Because we're all different and you will get people that, you know, might say something different than me. So I just think if that's a number one rule is just ask. And if you're not sure, then you can go by, you know, what I gave you. Sure. Thank you for that. I, um, I want to go back to 2015. And I think it was 2015 when when you launched a project called Reclaiming Native Truth, and it was uh, it was an amazing project looking at how Native peoples are viewed by non-Native peoples here in the United States. And and talk to us a little bit about what that looked like and what that project was. Yeah, I mean, you know, it really, yeah, the genesis was 2015. I mean, I think it began with a series of conversations. You know, I remember having conversations with a really good friend of mine, Alvin, Alvin Warren, who's from Santa Clara Pueblo. And at the time he was working at the Kellogg Foundation. But prior to that, he had been in the cabinet for the state of New Mexico on indigenous affairs and really, you know, accomplished career, both in politics and, and working in philanthropy. And just talking to a lot of other colleagues, tribal leaders, different Native nonprofit leaders, and just this sheer frustration with all of our collective individual experiences of just only being the only typically like Native in the room, right? Or the way that, you know, in any of our respective work that Native peoples never show up in the data. Uh, that we're, no matter where we go, we're constantly faced with these sort of caricatures and literally like really super smart grown people asking us if we still live in teepees and like, you know, and that, you know, this is sort of frustration of why can't we get more traction on our issues? Why are we so invisible? You know, why is nobody taking us seriously? And I think it just really began from that. Like we started dreaming, like, what would it take to really for Americans and big institutions, key institutions, you know, the sort of the levers of power to begin to really see us as our fully dimensionalized, authentic selves um, to really truly understand our issues and, you know, uh, the ways that systemic racism impact us to the ways that we really look at solutions for our communities um, and, and the way that we, we think about the future. And 
So just more and more, like, what would that look like to, you know, we started thinking about marketing campaigns and, you know, different things. And, um, and I just remember Alvin saying, you know, no matter what we do, there needs to be research and data attached because we just never show up in the data anywhere. And so what would that look like? And so just these percolating conversations. And then Carter, I went to an HA meeting that you led in Dallas, Texas, um, because I think I was on some kind of advisory committee or something. And you really talked about your work for AHA on message research and testing and the way that you guys were using that to move policy and other things. And the light bulb went on, right? And it just really began to be a series of conversations with you and your colleague, Bell Gerard at the time, and Alvin, and just more and more native leaders about how do we really get at what's going on in society. Like we are having our individual experiences, our collective experiences about how we feel really erased and discriminated against, but what, what, how do we move the needle? And I think this also comes at a time too, that in 2015 is when, you know, the Supreme court passed accepted marriage equality and, and like looking at, wow, that was like the ultimate sort of narrative culture change moment right? If you remember like the White House is lit up in rainbow colors and the country celebrating this moment that was decades in the making. And not every American clearly was supportive, but it was clearly the highest level of policy change possible. How could we get people to really get on the side of Native peoples in that way? Um, and so it was really all those kind of elements and threads and a lot of really super smart people that drummed up reclaiming native truth and it just by the grace of the moment and i really believe the hand of the creator kellogg gave us 2.5 million dollars to to really research the you know or to finance the project we designed and, and carter you were one of those architects so it was a really amazing journey so so you you led this project and and really looked at, at the issue of how Native Americans are viewed by non by non natives, and I, I'm really curious about what you found, and and what came out of that. What was the story that was told by the research? The story that the research told was that the biggest threat that Native peoples face, and the dominant narrative, is that we don't exist. We are we're invisible, and that we're erased, and. That was powerful um, to really see, you know, and $3.3 million buys a lot of research and a lot of super smart people working all at once and in a lot of different ways. So it was a lot of diverse methodologies that all kind of came to the same conclusions and, and sort of research that happened just right as we were starting Reclaiming Native Truth that found that, you know, almost 80% of Americans know little to nothing about Native peoples and a really significant portion of that aren't even sure if we still exist, if you don't live in proximity to a reservation and you like, say, for example, you live out on the East Coast or in certain parts of Texas, you don't think Native Americans exist anymore. And or you think we're a dwindling population. And as we began to really unpack that, we found that 72 percent of Americans rarely or never encounter any information about Native peoples. And as we began to really dive in, we found, you know, through research done by uh, Dr. Sarah, uh, Professor Sarah Shear that 87% of the schools in the country don't teach about Native Americans past 1900. And so that was a big one. K through 12 schools are huge. And so it's literally was understanding that generation after generation of students come out of our K through 12 school system and are literally conditioned to think that Native Americans didn't exist past 1900. 
we're, you know, they don't teach in government classes that every student has to take, for example, that tribes are sovereign nations with a nation to nation relationship with the federal government, that Native Americans are dual citizens. We're citizens both of our tribal nations and also of the United States. And we have a special political status that no other community in this country has, no other population has. Um, and we're recognized within the constitution. And so it was just like, wow, looking at education or looking at, as we looked in the space of media and pop culture and TV and film, that our representation is less than 0.04%. Or that 95% of the images in Google, if you type Native American, will come up pre-1900 and usually only of men. So as we began to really map this, it was beginning to understand that, you know, for so many of us as Native peoples, we have these instances where we do feel invisible. But now it was suddenly understanding like, oh, wow, these are big systems actually that are perpetuating and institutionalizing our erasure. And it's very active. And that we also found through that research, that invisibility, what it serves to do is a few things. One, it creates an implicit bias in itself that when somebody doesn't exist in your mind, then they're out of sight, out of mind. So you're just, you're not going to think about them as you're formulating policies or allocating resources or down the line. It also really serves to dehumanize Native Americans and where people really, you know, we found through one experiment study that was done that only 60% of those surveyed believe that Native Americans are fully human. And so when you look at that dehumanization, that begins to start to under explain why we have an epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women in this country. Thousands and thousands of indigenous women and girls go missing and are murdered. And up until very recently, nobody seemed to care or in law enforcement and justice systems of justice didn't care. Um, or you look at the amount of hate crimes and sort of the violence or just other acts of racism and discrimination that really makes us less than we're, we're kind of reduced to sports mascots, we're cars, we're military equipment, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that really, that dehumanizes. And so that really, it fuels a lot of racism and discrimination. And so we also found on the flip side, the very small representation that does eke through in the American public is authored not by us, but by non-natives. And it is the majority of Americans, their only interface with Native Americans is a sports mascot and seeing somebody in red face with turkey feathers acting a fool, you know, and thinking that that's okay. Cause you, and you think that that's Native Americans and these sort of caricatures or Halloween costumes. And, and so we really found that those things do matter, these toxic stereotypes or that we found the most two toxic perceptions that Americans do have is that Native peoples get everything for free from the government. We literally like get checks for being Native American. We don't pay taxes. We don't pay for college. But yet we're enriching ourselves off of tribal gaming. And what we found is that creates a deep toxicity and dislike for Native Americans and, and just a lot of animosity or resentment, especially by other historically marginalized communities that are like, wait a minute, we've faced things too. Why do they get this stuff for free when we went through slavery or this happened to our population when it's all false? Yeah. Um, so that's why we understood that, you know, between the erasure pieces, but also these kind of toxic stereotypes and false narratives, we really needed to work hard to dismantle them in order for people to truly see us as fully dimensionalized human beings in the 21st century. I remember very clearly the moment that I first saw that that less than human statistic 
that that landed like a gut punch for me. I mean, it was just it was it was hard for me to imagine. Yeah, this is you know five years ago, and I still think about. It. I bet I think about it every week because I think so much of what happens as we think about how we treat people in this country, dehumanization is at the core of so much of the bad stuff that happens to people. And I'm not even sure there's a question there, but it, it just, you see it. I, now that I, now that I've heard that stat for five years, I've watched it happen and it's crazy. Well, and it's, it's a, a well-worn weapon and tactic of white supremacy and of fascism to really target and dehumanize different populations um, in order to rationalize racism and discrimination and certain types of really harmful policies, right? And when you go back and look at Duque studies on Nazi Germany, right? And they're the way that they dehumanize Jews, right? You look, I mean, there's just so many instances in this country as well, whether we're talking about Muslims or Native Americans or Blacks, I mean, down the line or LGBTQ, where we make people less than human, we make them these sort of distorted caricatures. Um, and we see it, it's so prevalent right now. You know, I mean, it's it's sort of mind boggling to me. I was watching a report this morning about just the rise of anti-Semitism amongst young people. But that's because of these very popular, you know, ways that white supremacy and these sort of fascist tendencies use culture to really put forward these really harmful ideas that dehumanize and distort things that really cause a lot of harm. Yeah, they really do. I'm curious how that lands on a on a on an individual level. I think so much of the work that we've talked about is is, you know, big cultural forces. But but how does that land on an individual level? How did it land for you when you saw that number? I cried. It it re- it tore my heart out. Yeah. Um but it also explains so much. Just different instances of racism and discrimination I've faced in my life, but I think like I mean, what really was so much of the genesis of this project was just, you know, for me as a mother and watching, you know, my daughter be bullied, my daughter be treated less than human and less than by her teachers, by the principals in her schools, by fellow students. Um, I mean, to the point where she attempted to take her life, you know, where she really suffered. And, you know, like even in class, because she has a... um, you know, a traditional Dakota name, her teachers didn't even want to pronounce it. So they just went call her on the roll. And it's like the ultimate erasure. And when, yeah. like, when a young person experiences that, like where somebody's not even willing to say their name, you know, and they just are erased, um, the, the psychological harm that that causes, or, you know, on the flip side too, like uh, the research that Dr. Stephanie Freiberg's led on the psychological um, harm that mascots cause to our native children. They increase depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, right? These really harmful representations as well. I mean, those are real lives. These are real people. Um, And, you know, I think that's why when I look at the way these things particularly affect our young people, you know, and unfortunately we have the highest rates of suicide in the country. Um, And we we look at that. I think that's one of the, the, the fire in the belly, so to speak, about the work that we do is, is, you know, making a better world for people like my daughter and and grandchildren and great grandchildren. Yeah, absolutely. I want to shift gears a little bit because you mentioned the, the relationship that tribes have with 
the federal government here in the United States, and the idea of sovereignty. And I think for a lot of people, that's a word that that we don't ever use. We don't <laughs> we don't hear it very often. I was amazed when I started working with you and and, and your team at every single conversation um, after going for probably a decade, never having heard the word. And and the and, and it emphasized the importance of that concept of sovereignty. So so how does that work? What does sovereignty mean? Um, sovereignty. I mean, I think like when people think about like, what do you mean a tribe is a sovereign nation? I mean, all you have to do is think about tribes as many, many nations like the United States or Mexico or Canada. Right. And I mean, when you talk about a sovereign nation, I mean, you're talking about, uh, people, right. With historical land base, culture, shared language, you know, cultural and spiritual life ways, but really then, but also our ability to form our own government, right? And to be self-governing and self-determining. And tribal governments today operate just like any city, state, federal government. You know, we exercise, you know, governance over our people, our land bases. We we tax, we have citizenship, we have laws, we, we take care and provide services to our citizens um, and people around us. And, you know, so I think that's like the easiest way for people to understand is that, and we, we are those sovereign nations because we were here before anyone else, you know, and that sovereignty is recognized within the U.S. Constitution, right? And there's a very unique relationships that each one of the 574 federally recognized tribes have with the United States. And, and we're not even at the level of state, you know, states. We're actually at the level of federal, you know, and tribes up here. So states are not supposed to intervene in our issues, right? So when we talk about jurisdiction and and other things, it's really within the federal courts and Congress. And, and when we talk about federal Indian law, it's really at that federal level. But, you know, this country has a longstanding history of not respecting tribal sovereignty. So every day, you know, tribes and Native people get up and we have to continuously work to defend and preserve our our, our sovereignty and our, our ways of life. Is there a, is there a feeling of conflict be, being both Pawnee and a citizen of the United States, being a citizen of both nations, is is there a feeling of conflict there at all? And I wouldn't ask that. I'll be really clear. If someone has dual citizenship with the United States and Ireland, I wouldn't ask that question. But but here you're dealing with the history of colonization and uh, and all of that. Does that is that something that plays at all? For me personally, and I can only answer yeah. for myself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I consider myself more than anything a, a Pawnee yeah. citizen, uh, first and foremost. I've never fully, I mean, I am an American citizen, but, right. you know, I, this country is constantly really working hard to put our people down and, and just sort of the, the human rights abuses and atrocities and systemic racism and discrimination that happens. So, I mean, I don't ever feel like there's conflict, but the deepest level of loyalty I have is, you know, not only to my tribe, um, but when I think about Indian country and tribal citizens and I, but I think at the same time, you know, and I always find it really remarkable when I think about my elders and even currently, you know, native peoples have some of the highest rates of, of military service in the U.S. military, for example, um, and have really had profound impacts um, in, in the military service and in the wars from the code talkers, which weren't only Navajos, there were Pawnee code talkers and, and code talkers from all kinds of different tribes and just our impacts of service at so many different levels in this country, which is, isn't often recognized. So I always think, 
you know, so much, how much pride I have when I think about my, my grandpas and, and uncles and others that have, have served that they, you know, despite what this country has done to native peoples, you know, their willingness to go fight on the front lines and sacrifice, um, for this country is, is, is pretty remarkable. We're doing this conversation on Canada day on, on July 1st. And there are a lot of people struggling in Canada right now. Right. And rightfully so with, with the relationship between the first nations and, and people who came in and colonized the, the first nations in Canada and, and set up boarding schools where horrific things happened. I, I really think that there are so many stories of remarkable dedication uh, in spite of genocide and horrific acts. I don't know how I would, process all of that, to be honest. I don't know well, kind of how I you know, feel about it. It's hard. And yeah. but I think it's also like, here's the reality, right, that we're living in. And I think it's a both and. I mean, yeah. every day, you know, Native peoples get up and fight to preserve and defend tribal sovereignty and our ways of life and to really advance Native solutions and, and um, address challenges in our communities and to hold the federal government accountable. And I think what's important for people to understand is why we're just, everybody's just devastated watching this news come out of Canada and more and yeah. more mass graves are being found, right? That happened here. Yeah. And thank God, Secretary Deb Holland at Interior is now opening up an inquiry so that this can all come to light. I mean, I worked for my own tribe and our tribal government buildings are actually housed within the former boarding school buildings at Pawnee Nation. My grandfather went there and was mercilessly beaten um, over and over again because he only spoke Pawnee and they beat the language out of him, right? And the things that they did to him and so many other generations of young Pawnees. And, but I, when I worked at the tribe, there were stories about children buried, in, in basements in certain buildings and in different parts of the property. So, I mean, this is, people need to buckle in here in the United States because the truth is coming. And thank God we have Secretary Holland, you know, pushing um, to really open a more formal inquiry. But I think that Native peoples today, you know, we, it's both and, right? We, yeah. we can do these things and live in this country and, and be a part of Turning out, we had a huge impact on the elections in 2020. But if, when we went out and polled, we found 96% of Native peoples don't trust the federal government. But we also understand that, you know, increasingly we can't afford to sit out and not try to get more Native people elected to Congress, to not try to get more elected officials to really understand our issues and sovereignty. We can't check out of the system. <laughs> So yeah. it's a constant both and, um, and there's a, there's a tension there. Absolutely. I, I, and I think how we navigate that in that relationship and that conversation moving forward is going to be really important for all of us um, as, as, because the stories do need to come out. The, the truth does need to come out and we need to be, we need to be upfront and deal with it so that we can get through it, go through the process of, of um, reconciliation and, and, and do that work. I want to talk about how you really now are taking the lessons learned from Reclaiming Native Truth and, and beginning to change the world with your new organization that you've started, Illuminative. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, we took this big bucket of research <laughs> and a lot of strategy, you know, and I think what made that project special wasn't just research. I mean, we had in the end, I think we had over 200 different stakeholders, majority of which were Native people from all over the country, right, working on diverse issues some in urban areas, some in reservation areas, really feeding into the project. And, and I think there was really a mandate that was established that take this research and translate it into action. Don't let this be like another thing we publish and we move on. Um, and so I think we formed Illuminative three years ago this week when we published. 
uh, the research. And, you know, I think the first year was, I mean, I worked as an unpaid volunteer, (laughs) you know, I think I had like a part-time contractor um, helping me kind of pull stuff together you know, really was to take all of the dense research, right? Which if you remember, Carter, it was like four reports, um, pretty dense reports that came out of this and to really translate it into something that could, that anybody could access. Because that was what was so important is to get, get the word out. And for really, I think, to open up the world to see that this is an issue. This is, this is the manifestation of systemic racism, and white supremacy, though erasure, right? And and sort of the distortion of native peoples and, and the things that we've talked about, um, those cause harm. And just to even start that first level of conversation and get out and get the research in the hands of a lot of people across Indian country, but also to go do the work with allies. I think I lived in a, out of a suitcase for the first year, just zigzagging all over the country and sharing the research. And then, you know, was able to finally pay, start paying myself and hiring a couple staff, um, in August, 2019, this is relatively brand new. Um, and then really began to look at how are we taking what was identified as priorities in terms of disrupting erasure and finding different ways we do that, but where we really focus on some of these more toxic narratives, um, particularly in pop culture and, and media, um, that cause so much harm and misinformation. And, you know, right as we were really starting to do a bunch of stuff, the pandemic hit, you know, like everybody, it turned our world upside down. But it was actually interesting because what we found in the opening days and months of the pandemic is that invisibility is a matter of life or death. And no, nowhere in the media was anybody covering the way that COVID was impacting Native peoples and disproportionately so. In the early days of when the CARES Act was first being formulated, tribes and Native communities were not included. Uh, so we knew we had to fight like hell to shine a light on what, how COVID was impacting our communities. But we also knew we were kind of then hearing the story like, oh, the broken Native Americans, right? They're so pitiful and they need to be saved. And no, uh, actually, you know, we're not going to wait forever for the, the federal government. We're going to self-organize. So it was also really amplifying stories of how tribes were amongst the very first to actually lock down and do lockdowns, all kinds of ways that Native people organized to come together to get PPP to people, to just basic necessities and to really care for our communities. And so we used, you know, that moment to just do everything from hold the first ever virtual um, town hall on the impact of COVID that got more than a quarter million views. And we were able to really elevate what was happening. And that then led to more media coverage and actually some some policy changes and resources being moved into communities and in working with artists and just even, you know, to raise awareness, but also I think do public education with our own people. And then, right, then all of a sudden George Floyd's murder, right? And, and we're all dealing with this moment. And, you know, all of a sudden, very quickly after his murder, people started talking about racialized brands and that those are problematic. And suddenly the opening finally came for us to really like, you know, all these companies making these grand proclamations about systemic racism. And there was Washington, hypocritical as can be saying they're against systemic racism. And it started out with two tweets, one from Deb Holland and one from AOC that called the team out. And we latched onto those and we organized digitally and organized with a lot of different groups across the country and, and, and managed to link arms with $620 billion worth of investors 
And we finally brought the pressure to bear on the Washington football team name to change the name. And that was 30 years in the making, but it was this sort of crisis-tunity, you know, crisis and opportunity coming together and really using narrative and cultural strategy and rapid response organizing to create a groundswell that finally got that done. Um, you know, so that's that's a big one. And, and soon after the Cleveland Indians and a lot of, you know, changed their name and a lot of K through 12 schools since have. We also, you know, like I said, we really threw down for the 2020 election and teamed up with the Native Organizers Alliance and used our message research from our Indigenous Futures Project to really help us target messaging in nine states to Native voters to get them to turn out, to get them, you know, to be in conversation despite their mistrust of the government about why this was really an election of our lifetime. To the final thing I'll highlight is just, you know, our, our work around um, the nomination and confirmation of Deb Holland that, you know, Illuminative sort of helped to quarterback behind the scenes and piece together a broad coalition of Native and non-Native organizations. And we use different narrative and cultural strategies, strategic comms, and just good old fashioned inside and outside, you know, organizing to create that groundswell to, of support behind her, but also to really counter a lot of the very racist narratives that the right was pushing. So that's just a few examples. I mean, it was 2020. We were forged through the fires of it in, in a, a big way. And I think we're a very different organization as a result. Not to mention the Hollywood work that's going on and the stories that, I, that are now that are now <laughs> happening in Hollywood. We're really excited about that. I mean, our Hollywood work, you know, we're in partnership with almost major every major studio now. And, you know, and some of it is what we do is just harm reduction. We get sent scripts and we're like, hell no, you can't do that. Um, to really advocating that they hire Native writers and directors to, we, you know, the greatest, one of the greatest honor of my life is that we got to, you know, do some work on Rutherford Falls. Um, I mean, talk about a labor of love. And, you know, I hope everybody gets a chance to see it on the Peacock. You know, and, and Reservation Dogs is getting ready to come out August 9th on FX. And there's some other bigger projects at Netflix and Disney that we're advising on as well. And so that's the exciting part is the new narrative work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's not just taking down the the toxic racist stuff that exists just now, but it, the ability for Native peoples really to author stories that really reflect who we are and get them on the small and big screens is is really exciting. And it's Native peoples telling their story, writing the story. It's not someone else writing the story. Yeah, it's so exciting. You know, I think Rutherford Falls was the first show. She, a Native American, a Navajo showrunner, her name is Sierra Nalas, um, but half of the writer's room was Native. The co-star, Janice Schmeeding, she's Lakota. She stars opposite Ed Helms. And she's actually just been getting rave reviews, as has Michael Gray Eyes. So, um, and then Reservation Dogs has 100% Indigenous writer's room. And the majority of the crew was Indigenous wow. as well. I mean, it's huge. But then we step back like, okay, there's a lot more work to do. But there's finally the shift that's starting to happen. But again, that's built on decades and decades of work, and we're just really excited to be a part of this movement. It does feel like there has been a, I don't know if there's been a shift, but it feels like there's significantly more momentum today than in 2015 when you were thinking about reclaiming Native Truth. Well, and I remember when we did Reclaiming Native Truth, and I can remember our first big national poll we did in 2017, and it came back that something like 60 plus percent of Americans we polled don't think there's anything wrong with mascots. It's just honors people. Um, and I remember our pollsters at the time were like, 
you will never move Americans on this issue ever. You shouldn't even focus on it. And but we just we didn't have a choice. Like, right. you know, we 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 can not not focus on it. And, you know, to see what happened in 2020. And I mean, I feel like every week there's more news, you know, Colorado just banned mascots. Um, you know, seeing these things happen, but it's just it's part of this consistent organizing. But I think from George Floyd's murder to everything that's sort of come out about where we're having a broader conversation now, it's starting to about what is systemic racism. And seeing the way that people are really starting to to be more accountable and open up, um, you know, I think, unfortunately, without the murder of George Floyd, um, I think, you know, BLM has so much to be credited for, you know, for this. But I think Native organizers for decades have been working on some of these issues. So it's like I think that it was like the perfect storm between COVID, Mr. Floyd's murder, you know, everything that had been going on um, with just, you know, systemic violence against people of color the Trump era. I mean, I think it's a lot of forces that came that some stuff allowed things to start to move, but it's up to us to keep organizing and making sure that those openings don't close and that we actually make those openings wider and wider. But that continues to mean a lot, a lot more work. I kept you a little past um, how long I said I was going to keep you, but, but I do want to get to this, which is, which, which I knew I was going to do. I mean, I just, (laughs) we get talking and we sometimes go, but (laughs) That's how we roll. That's right. But I, I do want to ask, is if someone's listening to this podcast, has not been involved in the conversation you and I've been having for, for years now, but says, I want to take a step to do something, to I want, I want to take an action in my own life. What can a non-Native do to take that step? I mean, I think the first point is just acknowledging and educating, right? So I'd encourage people to go to our website, illuminatives.org, and we have all of our research up there. And we've made it in such a way it's really easy to flip through. It's not like you're reading some big, thick, dense paper. It's it's colorful. It's easy to get through where you can kind of start to get more into understanding. Because I think when people first just look at that, they're like, I didn't know. I think, honestly, the majority of people in this country aren't racist. They don't set out to, to hurt people. You know, I just think so much of it we have to understand there's so much ignorance. There's so much misinformation that's being created by big systems. So I think the first thing is to really educate, to read, follow us on social media, because um, we constantly engage in that education on a range of issues. And then I think it's just depending on what you do in your life, start researching your local community in your state. Are there tribes in your state? If so, who are they? Whose traditional lands are you are you sitting on and what happened to those people? If they're not there anymore, what happened? I mean, it's really piecing together the true history. And, you know, I think if you are, you know, in terms of your professional life, career or institution you might be operating in, it's then beginning to ask those questions of, wow, if I understand that erasure is another manifestation of racism against Native peoples, well, how is, is, is my institution, is the institutions that I'm part of, whether it's my church, my school, my place of work, you know, so on and so forth. Is there in any way that we're either intentionally or unintentionally <laughs> contributing to racism and harm? And if so, how do we how do we change that? How do we invite local native speakers in to do some education? How do we build relationships with local native organizations in your community? And state, there's now increasingly more and more content to watch about Native peoples, you know, Um, and I think that that just that journey and that education and starting to learn more just even locally, I think that what we found the majority of Americans 
have no idea if there's tribes or native peoples in their city or state. And to learn that history, because what you were taught in school is not accurate. (laughs) Um, That's the first place to begin. And then I think from that, all kinds of other ways to be active and involved, whether it's donating to organizations, if it's issues that are flaring up in your state where there's an opportunity for you to, you know, step forward and really be a, a strong ally on different issues. I think that there's, there's so many opportunities to be a good ally. I, one of the things I remember from the Reclaiming Native Truth report was that for most people, the knowledge that they have about Native people's life in this country is based on what they see in a Disney movie. Their education is from Disney, not from within the school system. And, and so I think just Beginning that foundation is really important and a really good first step. Absolutely. We're not a Walt Disney movie. Um, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't talk to animals. Well, I try to talk to my animals. They don't answer right. back or I can understand. <laughs> um, you know, um, and I don't live in a TV, but it's just, I think that's the most powerful thing is for people to suddenly start to open up their eyes and it's not cancel culture. And I think this stuff gets sort of spun in certain way or when we're everybody's big debates around critical race theory, it's not about teaching people how that wh- all white people are bad or, or how to be racist. Um, but it's really, it's about a moment just to really reconcile what really happened in this country. And there's good, bad, and really ugly. If we really want to move forward in a way where we don't see these kinds of atrocities happening to any population, our acknowledgement, our understanding, and the ways that we we reconcile the truth and the way that we make changes, that is good for everybody. Um, and I think the more that we really truly understand our history in this country, whether it's about Native Americans or you know other, other populations, it just makes us smarter. It makes our children smarter. We shouldn't be afraid of knowledge. And so I, I really hope more and more people will not listen to the propaganda <laughs> and just it's really about, you know, how we educate ourselves and really make a better life for our future. The work that you've been doing for your career is amazing. And it's made such a huge difference. Well, I I don't do it alone. And my friends, you know, you and I made a pledge to each other a long time ago. We were going to like link arms, you know, hold hands and kind of go into this as uncomfortable as it gets. And, and, you know, so I just think about all the many people along the journey that I don't do this alone. And it it takes a massive village (laughs) to do this, this work. And so I'm grateful to you. Um, I'm grateful to our awesome staff and all the people that support us. So this is a really fascinating one for me. As you know, Carter, I'm fairly well-traveled. I love talking to people. I love meeting people. But I have to say that I don't know any Native Americans. I was wondering about that and whether or not you have any experience with Native Americans. None. In all my 21 years in the U.S. and in all my travels, I don't think I've ever actually encountered, and I might have seen people at the airport, but I, I've never spoken to a Native American. Yeah, that, that was stark to me. And also, before I heard that interview, 
I would have referred to native peoples as American Indians. That's how I would have referred to them. So this was quite an education for me. I love the way you asked the question, how would you like me to refer to you? So that whole piece about being called native peoples versus indigenous peoples, Adobe would never have known that had I not listened to this interview. I had a so colleague who got so just wound up and worried about as we started working on Native American issues, she got so wound up and worried about language that it paralyzed her so that she couldn't do the work. I just thought as we started the conversation with Crystal, let's start by laying the groundwork that says, if you don't know, then just ask the question. And when you say paralyzed by language, what, I, didn't, I didn't quite understand that. She was, she was afraid she would say something wrong or offensive. Okay. It stopped her from moving forward and even having conversations yeah. with Native yeah. peoples. I think from my experience in, in working with Crystal and with all of the people that she has introduced me to that I've worked on Native issues with, they've all been very gracious in, in allowing me to just ask questions and say, right. I don't know what to say at this point. I don't know how to right. say it. Can you help right. me out? I, I understand why people see that as a vulnerable thing to do and maybe an uncomfortable thing to do. Yet the lesson that I've learned from Crystal and her friends are asking the question just makes it all easier. So lots in this one. The first one, I don't know if you can answer that question. So the project was launched in 2015. What was I, happening in 2015? Do we know? I think it was just the evolution of a lot of conversations okay. and thinking that Crystal had been doing and thinking about how can she move the conversation forward. I just think Things kind of came together for her at that point. Okay. You know, I was reading the statistics. 80% of people know nothing about Native Americans. 70% have never encountered a Native American. 87% um, of the schools don't teach Native American history after the 1900s. And I was reading, all, I was listening to all that and taking notes and thinking, I'm in every single one of those categories, actually. Right? Yeah. So well-traveled, people-oriented me, that's, <laughs> she's talking about me. But, every single one of those applies to me. And it applies to most people in the United States as well. Right. The nice thing about this is there's a big education gap there. And I don't remember the statistic off the top of my head. But the other thing is that people do want more information and more education. Right. They want to learn. Right. I'm now doing my own independent research, and I really can't wait to get a hold of this body of work. But are these numbers and is the lack of... So I was struggling with understanding if the lack of exposure, the lack of awareness, the lack of more people having encounters with Native Americans and their history, is that simply a product of, I mean, she talks about erasure, which was such yeah. a strong word for me, that there's a systemic, I don't want to say attempt, but it's just, well, the way things are has pretty much tried to erase a people, their history. And I struggled with that. And I know that there, you know, we have problems with race. We have issues with denial about the way things happened in the past, but is that I mean, that she feels that way, but that's the way she feels. But is that really, I, I'm ignorant about a yeah. lot of this, by the way, I, I'm admitting. Is that true? Yeah. If you go back to colonial times and there was a real effort at genocide. Right. I know that word and erasure strike people right. as really strong words. But part yeah. of the reason that it strikes people, I think, as really strong words is that we haven't learned that history. 
And so it is difficult for us to process strong words when we're, when we're ignorant of the history. But I think part of what Crystal's doing now is beginning to reverse that. And I was really excited to hear about the funding that they've gotten. I mean, yeah. that's a huge step in the right direction. I could really relate to the dehumanization. She talked about the fact that Native Americans, people typically think of uh, mascots and caricature and Halloween costumes and just, you know, all the things that don't really speak to who they are as a people. And it sort of got me thinking about my Nigerian-ness as I've lived in, you know, other parts of the world. I don't think I've ever felt dehumanization is a really strong word. Yeah. I've never felt dehumanized, but certainly I could relate to stereotype. And in my situation, I guess because I I sound different, I you know I was raised in the UK, I, I travel, I speak French. So I think people sort of my Nigerianness is not as as obvious to some people unless I talk about it, I write a lot about it. But that sense of you know, stereotypes and being dehumanized. A lot of my Nigerian friends and colleagues and people who, unlike me, were born and raised here and have had to try to assimilate into other cultures and to the point of, you know, being ashamed of our Nigerianness actually and thinking it was actually just easier and better to not deal with, you know, your Nigerianness. So, to, to listen to her, and she's not trying to pass as anything but a Native right. American. I really admire her passion and what she's how she's tried to turn this thing around to educate people, the funding. And I'm actually really looking forward to getting a hold of this piece of work because I, for one, am really ignorant of Native American history and culture. It's, I think, interesting to me, her ability to really just dive into this work with such passion. And my experience is that diving into to issues that hit too close to home for me is actually really hard for me to do because the emotions are too strong. And I was a little nervous about asking her. I asked her uh, the question, when you saw that number on dehumanization, how did that land for you personally? I was really nervous about asking her that question, yeah, right? Yeah. I, she said it made her cry. Yeah. It landed for me really hard. I can't imagine how it landed for her, but she handled it with such grace. Yeah. One of the things that I think a lot about, and I think we're going to hear this theme come up occasionally as we do this podcast together, but mm. we spend a lot of time as human beings dehumanizing other human beings. Right. And you look at everything that's going on in the world right now, and whether it's in the United States or anywhere else for that matter, I think dehumanization is such a tool that people use to otherize other people and to Others. keep them down. Absolutely. But you know, the optimist in me, the reason I struggle with that is why do people do that? I don't, I don't believe that people instinctively want to be that way, right? Yeah. So is it just, you know, is it media? Is it society? Is it, you know, I really wonder what drives people to be that way. Because a lot of the time, I mean, even when you talk to people who are other and people who express very extreme other views, I've found 
that when you have a one-on-one, when the cat with, you know, away from social media, away from the cameras, people aren't bad. People are not instinctively bad. And I just think that, you know, the kind of work that Crystal is doing is, is going to be really useful. And because sometimes you just, it's easy to just be ignorant, right? Yeah. And it's that it's yeah. that ignorance when you when you don't have a feel for someone when you don't have a feel for for what you don't understand i think it's just lazy it's easy to just be negative i think part of that otherizing if that's a word i think part of that is is that it's easier it's easier to say that's different than me therefore i don't like it that's a really basic level of talking about it but i think that's kind of the first step right. and then i think we, what we're seeing especially today with social media, is using otherizing as a way to divide us into groups where we can feel really good about our group and bond our group in a stronger way by otherizing others. You and I worked together years ago. We actually met working at the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids in Washington, D.C. The Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, while we were there, did some really interesting work and we did a lot of research into how to motivate people online. Hmm. And the, the lesson that was very clear that we learned at that point, uh, and this is back in, you know, 99, 2000, the lesson that we learned at that point was you can motivate people through happiness and hmm. by telling good stories, and you can get a little ways down the road. But if you really want to motivate people, tell them that there is evil out there and then name that evil and then tell them that you're fighting against that evil. And that really motivates people. It's research we did about how you do online politics, but I'm sure it's been true forever that naming someone as other as evil helps bond a group together to move forward. Well, some good has come out of this as well. Um, yeah. I've, I've written down a whole bunch of movies that I have to go watch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Reservation Dogs. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, let's talk a bit about that. As Crystal was trying to think about what to do next and how to really use the report, and she really went to, how do we use this to tell better stories? And because she understands uh, in a really strong way the power of storytelling to change Mm -hmm. minds and to educate people. And so she went to Hollywood, and I remember having a conversation with her. She had either just come out of a meeting in Hollywood or she was just going into it. I think she'd just come out of the meeting in Hollywood, but she was really excited. And she said, I I think we're going to begin to get native stories told from a native perspective with native writers and and native producers. She was so excited about it. And so now Illuminative, the, the group she founded, part of what they do is they consult with Hollywood and they help connect native Americans that want to work in Hollywood or that are working in Hollywood with good projects. And then like she said in the interview, you know, part of what they do is they get a script and say, no, you can't do that. (laughs) You can't portray it that way. Uh, But part of what they do is they also say, yeah, here's how you can tell the story in a way that's authentic. That's awesome. I actually did a Google search on Native Americans in Hollywood. There's a lot there. There is a lot. I'm still weeding through, um, but it'll be really interesting. I like what you said about using the report to tell Native American stories from their perspective. Yeah. 
relating that to Nigeria, you know, Nollywood, the Nigerian Hollywood is, I think it's the third largest cinema industry in the, in the, I think second only to a third after Bollywood. When people start learning how to tell their stories, it really does make a difference in how the world views you. Yeah. Certainly. I know that's happening with, with, with Nollywood. I'm curious about Nollywood. I haven't heard, I haven't heard the Nollywood phrase before. Oh, wow. Nollywood is huge. I think it's now Bollywood, which is Indian, uh, the Indian cinema. I think it's Bollywood, Hollywood, and then Nollywood. I'll send you a couple of really interesting pieces on on Nollywood. Yeah, that'd be great. Nollywood movies are now on KLM. I watch Nollywood movies on KLM now. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. I, I have not seen them here, but yes. now, now I'm going to do my own yes. Google search and see if, right. if I can find Absolutely. some available here. Absolutely. Change is coming. Well, I'm looking forward to studying this body of work. I really am. I will be on that website and, and, and I'd love to have a chat with Crystal at some point, actually. Uh, and I would love to help make that happen. Next week, we talk to Kevin Turf. Kevin Turf has this amazing story about what he went through on 9-11. His story was part of the inspiration for the Broadway musical Come From Away. We're going to talk a lot about the compassion that Kevin uh, experienced on 9-11. I'm looking forward. Timely, too. Thank you, Adobe. The Key and Kite podcast was created and hosted by Carter Hedrick and co-hosted by me, Adobe Oniwinde. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please help us out and let other people know. You can also rate us and provide a review on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Twitter at Key and Kite Pod. The podcast is produced by Carter Hedrick. Music for the Key and Kite is written and performed by the Avery Gross Band. Their album, The Devil May Care, reached number 10 on the Billboard Blues album chart. The next album, Telltale Heart, will be released on September 24, 2021. Learn more at avgrouseband.com. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Please join us again next week. <music>